Our Father in heaven, Lord, we want to pause and recognize the amazing privilege of calling you Father. That you have made us, you have given us every good thing we have ever experienced. You have shown your great love for us through Jesus. You continue to welcome us into your presence with joy every time we come before you in prayer. Father, we want to in this moment acknowledge that you are very great, greater than we can imagine. The heavens cannot contain you. No one has ever seen the fullness of your glory and yet you have shown us your great love through Jesus Christ and his compassion for the sick, for the poor. His love for men and women. His compassion for those who were like sheep without a shepherd and how he lovingly taught, healed, and laid down his life for us, all because you are the Father. And he loved you and was obedient to you, and you loved us while we were yet sinners and sent your Son as the greatest gift that we could ever receive. We didn't deserve it, but in your love, in your grace, you gave us your Son, Christ. And Father, we want to worship you in prayer right now. Father, we confess the sin of not loving others the way you have loved us. And yet, lest we be discouraged, we thank you that you continue to give us your grace. You continue to pour out your love for us. And your love enables us to love you in return and to love others. Father, I pray that through this message, you would increase our experience of your love, that when we leave today, we would know we have heard a sure word from you, and it is a word that speaks love to our souls. And Father, I pray that as we receive your love, we would give it to the people around us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. When I was at Moody Bible Institute several years ago now, um, we had chapel four days a week, and we often had guest speakers. And I cannot tell you the man's name, but I will never forget the guest speaker that came and addressed us and loudly sang, this world is not my home. He had an amazing, great voice. The whole chapel started clapping because it's a great tune. It's, it's a song that makes you want to stomp your feet. And we were all just kind of enthusiastic. It's just kind of a, a weird down-home country moment in the heart of Chicago. And he sang, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. And so we had this great moment of, of kind of laughing and joy, and it was a lot of fun. And then he looked at us and he said, y'all are a bunch of heretics. And we thought, what? And it's kind of fun and maybe slightly rude to pick on a song that a lot of people love, and that's not what I'm going to do. 
because I don't quite agree with him. But here's what I do want to do. Sing that song, sing that song with enthusiasm. Because in reality, we are living in a broken world. We are living in a world that should make you long for the presence of God, where there will be no more sickness, no more abuse, no more suffering. There will be no more hunger. And so there is a real sense in that the world as we experience it is not the fullness of God's goodness. And yet, have you ever heard the expression that you can be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good? There's also the reality that as you long for heaven, you ought to be able to begin to enjoy it now. And what I especially want to bring home today is the reality that God creates loving family everywhere Jesus is preached. And that family gives you strength in suffering. Okay, I'm going to say that again. If you're, if you're ever like, what's the point of your sermon? This is it. The grace of God creates loving family Everywhere Jesus is preached, this is not blood family, this is spiritual family, made family by the blood of Jesus Christ through adoption. And that family that the grace of God creates everywhere Jesus is preached, whether it's in ancient Rome or in Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, where Peter is writing or it's in China, or it's in Iran, wherever Jesus is preached, the grace of God creates this loving family, and that family gives you strength in suffering. So when the song says, Lord, you know I have no friend like you, I believe the Father would lovingly speak to your soul and say, you know what? I did give you a family. Are you enjoying the love of God through the church? And if you're not, and I think everyone goes through seasons where they don't for different reasons, then I think we ought to think about how do we enjoy the love that God wants for us to have within the church? And the first question we ought to ask is what should I be doing to contribute to the love that God wants us to enjoy together. I have been preaching through the book of 1 Peter. Peter is writing to people who are suffering for a number of different reasons. And he's writing a letter of amazing encouragement and practical instruction so that they remember this hope, this heavenly hope that you might sing about in a song like, This World Is Not My Home. And yet he so clearly teaches that the promises of God begin to be enjoyed now. And at the end of this little letter, there are three verses, and I, and I want to do two things today. I want to point out the love that is just assumed in these three verses. He's not giving you clear instructions, although he does give you one. He is, or I should say two, he is instead demonstrating the love that he has for these people and showing the love that churches that are displaced by hundreds of miles have for each other. So he's, he's modeling, he's demonstrating, he's giving an example of love. 
And not only that, I want to take a moment and review the book. Because he gives me this beautiful verse that invites us to remember all that we've seen through 1 Peter. And so I'm going to read these three verses, and we are going to take them one at a time, but it's such a short passage. I want to encourage you to read it with me. If you have a Bible open, I would encourage you to turn to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5. Um, I don't, well, maybe I do knock phones a little bit. Here's, here's the thing that I would say is going to be hard for you if you're following along on a phone today. If we flip back and forth between five chapters, you cannot browse five chapters with a phone because you've got to scroll really fast, and as the words go flying by, you can't read them. So I would pause and say, I do think there's value in having pages to look at because you can look at little notes that you've made. You can see verses that you've highlighted. You can look at all five chapters of 1 Peter in about 30 seconds and look for familiar verses, and we're going to do a little bit of that today. Before we go to our text for scripture reading, I want to read you what I think is one of the most helpful, important sections of the book. And so I'm going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, and I just want to read verses 3 through 9. In my prayer, I wanted to address God as Father and describe his fatherly love and ask for more of it for our church. This is part of why. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now there's so much there, but the thing I want to point out is that our future hope is bound up with being born again in the present. Peter says, you have been born again. Let me ask you, have you been born again? Is that actually true of you? Can you say with confidence that you have life from God Almighty because you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Faith that doesn't just agree with some historical facts, but faith that obediently follows the commands of Jesus, commands to be baptized Commands to be holy. Commands to live as Jesus taught us to live. Faith that is active. Because Peter says as they suffer, this faith in Jesus Christ that has caused them to be born again, given them new life. The implication is everyone in one sense is born dead spiritually. 
And we need this new birth. Peter learned it directly from Jesus. Maybe you remember in John's gospel when Jesus talked about how we need to be born again. And that birth happens as we look at Jesus' death for our sins and resurrection and understand in a very personal way that he died for my sin. And because he was raised, God gives us new life. And that confidence in Jesus can give us joy in our present suffering so that not only do we long for heaven, but we enjoy some of heaven now. There's no place for a disgruntled Christian within the church. Now, I understand all of us go through seasons of discouragement. All of us go through bouts of depression, some far worse than others. But that's why we're family. So that if you are depressed, I can pray for you and love you and remind you of what's true. And when I'm depressed, you can pray for me and love me and remind me what's true and point me to this new and living hope and point me to the truth that our sufferings are temporary. They will pass away. And the eternal life that we have through Christ will never fade away. And the future of every believer is full of glory and joy and hope. And this is what Peter has written to people who are suffering. Now go to the end of the book. This is our, our very last week here in First Peter. And look with me at the last three verses. Peter says, By Silvanus, who is a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That's his one command. Then he says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. That's his other command. Peace to all who are in Christ. So the main point of this message is that the grace of God creates loving family everywhere Jesus is preached. And that family gives you strength in suffering. Well, my first point today is that Peter is loving this church through a letter. Loving through a letter. Point out, just verse 12, Peter says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, Exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now think for just a moment. How do you receive the grace of God? How do you receive the grace of God? You may say, through Jesus. Okay, fine. How do you know about Jesus? Who told you? And how did they know about Jesus? Well, friends, it all goes back to the word of God. Unless God inspired men to write down his holy word, we wouldn't have any sense of what anyone said to us and whether it was true or not. And Peter says that he wrote briefly to this church, exhorting and declaring the true grace of God, and he intends for this letter to be read he intends for it to be read publicly for those who are illiterate and can't read so they could listen to it. 
but he intends for it to be copied and read broadly. He's writing to five different area churches in the ancient world, and when it went to those five churches, it spread all over the ancient world. God speaks to his people through a book. And yes, I believe in preaching and teaching, but I also believe in reading. That's why God wrote his word down for us. And we receive the grace of God when we read it and believe it, and when we hear it and believe it. Now, if you've been born again, if you could say, I am a Christian, I am a believer, there has been a time in your life when someone explained the gospel to you. And you don't have to point chapter and verse to demonstrate the truth of the good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. Peter put it all throughout this book. It's everywhere in this short little letter. That the reason we are saved is that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. He took the full punishment for us as we celebrated in communion. And not only did he die in our place, But because he perfectly satisfied God's justice, he was raised to new life. And it's his new life especially that gives us hope. It gives us the new and living hope that Peter talks about. And so if you have been born again, at some point, someone explained the truth that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, and you understood it personally and believed it, and you acted upon that truth by calling out to God and asking for the forgiveness of your sins. See, Christianity is not primarily a set of instructions so that you can live a better life. Christianity is primarily the way to have peace with Almighty God. And we find that peace when we believe the message of the gospel that's written in the pages of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation. And so, the way Peter loves these churches spread about the ancient world is he writes them a letter. Friends, if we want to receive the love of God, we need to know what God says. We need to be wholly devoted to the word of God more than any other thing. There are people who are popular and gifted speakers that may be enjoyable to listen to, but the real question is, are they faithful to what God has said? Do they handle the scriptures in a way that is true to God's intention for us? Or do they take them and twist them and turn them so that what they clearly say is not what they claim actually God wants for us to know and do and believe? When you hear verses that are uncomfortable, is your first reaction, how can I understand that in a way so that it means the opposite? How can I explain it away so that I don't have to obey it? Is it possible that perhaps we have evolved so that we no longer need that anymore? And I want to say to you again and again and again, if you want to experience the love of God, it begins by being open to his word. And so sometimes, in fact, I would even say often, the word of God confronts you painfully because in our natural state, we don't love what's true Think about for just a moment how you wake up, or I'll just be honest, I'm not going to throw you under the bus, I'm going to throw myself under the bus. 
When I arrived at church this morning, I often wear hats. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. I like it partly because my ears are constantly cold, partly because I have little boy hair always, and it sticks up in embarrassing ways. And so I kind of jokingly refer to my hats that Lauren makes me as hair trainers. They're very helpful because they make my hair lay down. I walked into my restroom, as I, I always have a couple of moments where I, I do a few things. I, I spend some time in prayer. I go over my notes. I read my text again. This morning, I, I read my devotional reading, and, and I stepped into the restroom that's in my office, and I looked in the mirror, and the natural state of my hair was not appropriate for church. I had a couple strands that were like in a large clump that were sticking straight up like a rhinoceros horn. And so I changed the natural state of my hair to make myself look a little better. I did my best, okay? I'm not saying it's great. This is what you get. What's true physically when we just naturally get out of bed is even more true spiritually. How many of you always say exactly what you think when you're around other people? I don't, and thankfully, that's a mercy of God, because sometimes I need to repent for what I think and ask for the mercy of God to help me speak grace and truth, because my first reaction is not always true. I am a sinner through and through, and when God's word confronts me, my natural inclination is to say, man, that mirror is broken. I look great spiritually. There's something off with the word of God because it says this thing that just can't possibly be true. But if I accept the word of God as true, it will instead correct me and bring me into alignment with God's holiness. So friends, if we're going to know the love of God, if we're going to experience the love of God, it begins by being open to the word of God. And that's why Peter wrote this letter because he wanted the church to know the love of God. And so he wrote briefly to them, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Now he's writing primarily to believers. This is not an evangelistic letter primarily. He's not trying to convert unbelievers with this. He's trying to encourage and strengthen people who have already heard and believed the gospel. He says to them in the verse I read for scripture reading, that they have been born again, Meaning, they've already heard the message of Jesus, they've already believed it, they're already saved, they already have eternal life. Why is it that he writes them exhorting and declaring to them the true grace of God? Well, friends, because we're forgetful. And because we still have sin indwelling in us. And so we still have the temptation, even though we know what Jesus has done for us, to try to live the Christian life in our own strength. And so throughout this short little book, Peter has given us exhortations and commands. Now again, these are for people who have already believed the message of the gospel. And I want to use this time, I'm going to read a couple of things. Most of these are pulled directly from verses, but this is kind of a summary of the book. Peter has told these believers to be sober-minded. Don't be caught up in 
the entertainment of the world. Don't be caught up in the things that would distract you. Be aware of what's happening around you. And most of all, set your hope on the future grace of Jesus Christ when he is revealed. The, the verses I read in chapter 1 describe how they've been born again to a new living hope, how they may, if necessary, suffer for a little while before Jesus comes, but when Jesus comes, he is bringing them glory. Glory that's greater than you can imagine in any other context. Glory that's greater than the glamour of a runway or a YouTube star that's trying to show you how to put makeup on. Glory that's greater than any football game, no matter how incredible the victory at the end. Glory that's greater than any earthly power. Glory that's full of happiness and joy and celebration. And so Peter commands us to set our hope on that future glory. He says, don't be the same person you were before Christ. Instead, he commands you, be holy. What is holiness? Well, part of holiness is is purity. It's leaving your sin behind and doing what is right. Christians are to be different. We are to be pure in our politics, in our entertainment, in our families, in our values, and most of all, we are to be pure in our devotion to God. Now, Christians have a couple things they love to harp about. Some of them love to harp about politics. Some of them love to harp about culture. I don't want to do either of those things today. Um, I'm going to be a tiny bit political a week from today for, for the first time, so pray for me. I'm just going to throw that out there. But here's what I want to do today. We are to be holy in our devotion to God. That's H-O-L-Y, holy. What does that mean? Partly, it means that God occupies the main place of priority in our life. He says in the first commandment, have no other gods before me. Do not make anything an idol. Anything. Tim Keller says, The most terrible idols in our lives are the good gifts of God that he wants to bless us with. I was listening to a message. Dave Goodrich actually sent me a link to it. This is a great message. I think you should hear it. And he was right. It was great. And Keller was talking about idolatry in such clear and helpful ways. And he told a story of a young man that was just in love with his girlfriend. And and I don't know why, but for whatever reason, she said, it's over. We're done. I, I don't want to marry you. I don't want to date you. I, I don't, I don't want to be around you. And, and he said, if you're done with me, I will shoot myself tonight. Which, you know, that's a, that's a great foundation for a relationship, right? Well, obviously, we're going to move forward with this. She said, we're done. Closed the door in his face. And he went to his car, got a revolver, and shot himself on her front porch. Why? Because he had made her his God. He couldn't live without her. And so in a literal way, he ended his life because he had exalted her to a position that she never should have occupied. Keller says, when you do that, you do two things. You will crush someone else under the weight of your expectations because you believe that they'll fulfill your longings and your happiness. And you will forever be disappointed because they cannot meet those needs. 
So friends, when I say that we need to be holy in our worship to God, I mean the good things in our life have to come behind your relationship with God. The worship of God in setting aside time to hear his word and to sing his praises, even when your heart doesn't feel like it, you set aside time to be in the presence of God, to pray, to read the word, to hear the word. Friends, we are called to be holy, and it's not an option And it's not for some elite force of Christians. It's not for the professional Christians. It's for every Christian. So we are to be holy. And not only that, he says, we are to love one another. As we are wholly devoted to God and we enjoy receiving his love, that love flows through us to the people around us. People that we're not physically related to. And it creates a community of loving family. But Peter doesn't leave it alone there. The church is not supposed to be some isolated community. We're not a cult. We're not going to go build a compound and live together. That's a bad idea. It never ends well. It has been tried again and again for thousands of years. It's always a bad idea. We can stay in Holly. We'll be all right. Peter commands the church, though, to submit to government, to have a relationship with the ruling authorities around you, and to respect the authority that God has put in place. Friends, if that's hard for us, it was even harder for the people that Peter was writing to. They had been thrown out of their homes for no other reason than the fact that they were faithful believers in Jesus. And their faithfulness had caused them to be thrown out of their city and forced to move hundreds of miles away to a new place with no certainty or security. You know, Rome did not really give a pension, especially not if you were Christians. They gave free entertainment, but Peter wouldn't approve of the entertainment that they gave either. So he's telling them, be submissive to the governing authorities, be respectful even when you have to disagree. And then he goes through the different groups of people that are in the church. He has instructions for slaves, not because he's saying slavery is this great thing. Ultimately, slavery ceased to exist in the ancient world because of Christianity. It was forever changed, and it wasn't until much later that the evil institution that we're more familiar with came about. Peter gave instructions for slaves for how they could suffer for a little while, but ultimately how they needed to serve Jesus, their master, by working hard and having a good reputation and showing that their hope was in Christ, not in this present life. He wants them to endure under suffering, knowing that God sees every injustice and that God will make it right, just as God in his wisdom sent Jesus to suffer And after Jesus suffered for a little while, God raised him and glorified him. And he says to slaves who are experiencing some of the most brutal suffering in the ancient world, God will glorify you. You are not less than human. You are not deserving of the suffering that you are experiencing. If your faith is in Christ, God will strengthen you, uphold you, establish you, and justify you one day. 
trust in Christ, and hang on. He urges wives to be subject to their husbands in a way that's deeply offensive to us today, and yet he urges husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way, in a way that is also deeply offensive to us today. He instructs husbands and wives to have the kind of marriage that shows your deep happiness in God. And then finally, he turns to the church. So after he's addressed these people who are vulnerable in different ways, he turns to the church and says, all of you be subject to one another. These are commands. They're not optional. He urges the elders, those who are responsible for leading the church, to shepherd the flock well, and he instructs the congregation to submit to the leadership of the elders. These are grace-filled gospel commands that help you understand what it means to be holy. And that brings us to last week, where we read, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Now, all of these things, all of these things are assuming grace. There's a way to read the commands of the New Testament that's so discouraging because all of us have broken them and all of us have failed. But Peter is doing two things. He is reminding us of what it means to be followers of Jesus and what it means to be holy. You can't be a holy believer and mistreat your wife. It's not possible. You're not going to be right before God, and God is not going to listen to your prayers. That's what Peter says. You can't be a holy believer and hate your boss. You can't. You can't be a holy believer and gripe about the government as if God hasn't put it in place for this time and this place. You can't. And so Peter wants us to understand holiness in the ways that we live our lives in our town of Holly, in our homes in our country, and all of it comes through grace. You see, when the Bible talks about grace, we understand it rightly as a gift of God. We can't earn it. It's his favor that he freely gives to whomever he wills. We don't deserve it, and there's nothing we could do to deserve it. It's a gift. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one could boast. No one will stand before God and say, You loved me because I ever. Doesn't matter what you might try to fill that blank in, because I fed so many people, or because... I raised so many children or because, because, because. It, no one will ever be able to fill in that blank. The grace of God, his favor is always a gift. And all of these commands are part of the true grace of God. Peter says, I have written briefly to you exhorting, that's commanding, and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Now, the fact that he says this is the true grace of God suggests that there are false gospels out there. There's a false kind of grace. And friends, I would say that's definitely true to this day. There are preachers out there who are saying things that are not true. 
How do you know the difference? You have to go back to the written word of God. God helps you be discerning when you are devoted to his word. That's why Peter wrote this letter. There are so many, so many preachers today that will tell you God doesn't want you to suffer. That's not God's will for you. That directly contradicts everything Peter has said. If you hear someone saying, and I'm thinking of one guy in particular, you know, don't be embarrassing to God by wearing crummy clothes. It's a guy that, that preaches to tens of thousands of people a week that's telling, you know, you ought, you ought to try to look nice. God's kind of embarrassed if, if you don't look good. So what does that say to you if your clothes have holes in them, if you bought them at Goodwill? What does that say to you if you can't afford shoes? You know, if somebody wants to come into the church without shoes, you let him. You don't say, oh, I'm sorry, your feet smell. You don't. The grace of God is a free gift that's open to everyone. And part of what Peter is saying and part of what we need to hear as the American church is that God's grace does not exempt you from suffering. It doesn't make you rich. God's grace gives you the strength and the ability to endure until your real hope arrives when Christ returns. That's the grace of God that gives you an inheritance that cannot be taken away from you the way the Romans took away these Christians' belongings. The grace of God that's a true grace of God is the message that we are forgiven and loved and adopted and given an inheritance along with Christ Jesus. And it's a grace that not only gives you good things, it's a grace that changes you from a sinner into a saint. You see, there are people that preach a gospel that that says, God doesn't want you to suffer. God wants you to be wealthy. I love those little DVDs about the American gospel because it shows people, like one woman who was listening to some popular preachers quit her job because she was taught, you need to step out in faith. And if you just step out in faith, God's gonna bless you with a better job. And you know what God blessed her with? Being unemployed. And when she was unemployed, what happened was, is she started to question everything she'd heard from those popular preachers. Yeah, they looked really good, but she was unemployed, so clearly what they said wasn't true. She didn't get a call from a better employer. She didn't start making more money. Instead, she started to understand that the grace of God was far more about the forgiveness of sins and changing her than it ever was about a bank account. And friends, those lies are prominent in our culture. They are here in Holly. They are on TV. They are on the internet. Know the true grace of God by knowing his word. There is such a thing as false grace. There are also people that preach a gospel of false grace where they say that the teachings of the New Testament were so distorted by their time that we cannot take the Bible literally anymore. So the ethics of the Bible that inform our families and our communities, they're not valid today. And they say the true grace of God is a God that embraces and accepts everyone as they are. Well, you know what? The message of Jesus is that he takes everybody as they are, but he changes them so that we are holy the way God is holy. 
And so the true grace of God is not a grace that says you're perfect exactly the way you are. It's a grace that says you're a sinner, you're broken, and God loves you anyway. And he's not going to leave you broken. He's going to forgive you. He's going to welcome you with the love that you've never experienced anywhere else. And the greater you experience his love, the more you realize the sins that you used to love were empty and hopeless. But if you have people teaching you that the sins that the Bible condemns are not actually sins, you know what happens? You end up cut off from a holy God. You never experience his love. And so you end up very much like the young man that made his girlfriend an idol. You end up dead, hopeless, separated from God because you don't know his love. Friends, we need not just grace and not just what people call grace. We need the true grace of God. How do you find it? By knowing the word and loving it. Don't just listen to your friends. Don't just listen to people who are popular. Know the word and ground your faith there. And Peter wrote to remind them because forgetfulness has been a human trait for all of human history. We need reminders because we still have a sin nature. I still, I don't want to be humble. I want to be first in every area of my life. I don't want to be exalted later. I want to be exalted now. And I don't necessarily want to be holy. I want the sins that I love to be satisfied now. And the true grace of God comes along and confronts my sin, reminds me of who I am, reminds me of the love of God poured out and the blood of Jesus on the cross and says, I'm wrong about all of it. I need Jesus. And the true grace of God sets me free again and again and again. And I need these reminders constantly. So the true grace of God found in the pages of scriptures, you can't get enough of it by hearing a message once and saying, I'm good. You need it daily. You need it moment by moment. And so Peter writes this letter to be read in the church, urging them to stand firm in this grace. Why does he command them to stand firm? John Calvin said this, the the reason it's necessary is because it is difficult to continue in the faith. And if you have any doubt about that, the evidence that it is difficult to continue in the faith is that there are daily defections of many. There are thousands and thousands of people that say, I was raised in the church. I'm not a a Christian. They might say a couple of good things about it. You know, I actually was reading about a pop artist that many people don't even realize that she got her start in singing Christian music. She had one album from a small label that went bankrupt right after she recorded it. And today, she's known, she's a superstar. She, She has lived the dream, but she got her roots and her start in the church. And now, she just says all those people are backwards. They're wrong about everything. She doesn't believe in any of it. And I wish I could say there's only one person like that. But the truth is, if you know anything about the music industry, so much of pop music started in the church. 
So many artists got their start singing on a platform, leading in worship. And once they got famous, they said, you know what? The church is holding me back. And they left. And not only that, it's not just famous people that face those temptations. It's every believer. As soon as you're surrounded by non-believers, whether it's at school or whether it's at college, whether it's a workplace, anytime you are apart from fellow believers and you're with non-believers, you face a little bit of pressure to say that the things that God says that are not popular, you know, I'm not sure about that. Other people think that. I don't know what I think. And it starts with saying, I'm not so sure. I'm questioning. I'm open. But as you are open and questioning, you are rejecting the clear teaching of the word of God. And it's easy to give in. And it's easy to not stand. So the command that Peter says is not only is he giving this reminder, he says stand firm in it because it's easy to give up and to lose hope. Remember your hope because it's easy to forget it. And then he not only loves them through a letter, I love that Peter clearly lives what he preaches. He practices what he preaches because then he says in verse 13, he loves them through this greeting. And this might seem like a small incidental thing, but listen to to what Peter says. He says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings and so does Mark, my son. Now there's some question, uh, Babylon might be a reference to Rome. Uh, Later on in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, that's clearly the case. Uh, But probably what Peter's actually doing is he starts this letter saying, hey, I'm writing to you who are exiles, those of you who have been thrown out of your homes and you don't feel welcome anywhere. Well, Babylon was the capital city where the Jews were forced to live when they were thrown out of Jerusalem in the Old Testament. King Nebuchadnezzar came, he destroyed the temple, he knocked down the walls of the city, and he carried off thousands of exiles, made them march 900 miles to live in the city of Babylon, and it was a a sort of symbol of their failure. It was an incredibly tragic time. And Peter says, she who is at Babylon, this symbol of exile, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. He mentions she who is likewise chosen. Almost certainly, Peter is talking about the church that is at this city or at this place. And so wherever he's living and writing from, and a lot of people think he probably was in Rome, but honestly, we don't have the history. We don't know for sure. Peter is writing on behalf of the church where he lives, and he's sending these greetings and saying, this church is full of believers, full of those who have this new life just like you do, and we love you. We want to say hi. We want to, in a small way, maintain a relationship from hundreds of miles away that says, Jesus saved us too, and we care about you because we know that Jesus saved you. And so he loves them through a greeting. He mentions Mark, his son, Uh, Probably not literally his son, almost certainly. This is the Mark that went throughout the ancient world with him as an assistant, as a fellow pastor, and and probably the Mark that actually wrote the Gospel of Mark. And and Peter is giving this kind of family affection, and it was very common. We know for a fact, like Timothy, Paul regards him as a son in the faith, but we know that he's not literally Paul's son because he lists who's 
Timothy's parents actually were. So Peter's probably doing the same thing, and what this matters to us is the fact that people who are not blood-related have a kind of loving family affection that's deeper than blood. You know what the church can do for people that never have kids? The church can be the place where they enjoy the blessings of kids. Do you know what the church can do for people who never get married? The church can be a kind of family and welcome them in a way that unbelievers don't. And the church is the place where family is not the result of physical relation. It's the result of God's adoption, that we have been forgiven by our Father, and all of us are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And to demonstrate that, not only does, does Peter say you should maintain these, these relationships through a distance, this church from hundreds of miles away is saying hi to all you people. He says in the last verse that they are to love through affection. And this is the second command, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, I was talking to, to my Wednesday morning group of guys. Alan Highfield says in our COVID context, we should translate this verse, greet one another with an elbow bump of love. It's kind of true. Uh, also, I am not going to advocate kissing. Uh, you can think about how the Italians do it. You know, they do a kiss on each cheek. And I've been around Italians and Greeks, and, and I still find it awkward. That's not my culture, and, and I'm okay with that. And when the Bible has cultural things like this, there's always a principle that's true. Always. The Bible does have cultural things in it. Here's the thing that runs like a solid stream of truth. The church is to demonstrate affection for one another in ways that are culturally appropriate. Guys, we need to hug again. There is something, I recognize not everybody's a hugger. If you're not a hugger, I'm not going to get on you about this. But we need to show physical affection People who are lonely need to know the love of God, and one way you can show that is in giving godly, holy, pure hugs. Even Peter says, greet one another with a kiss of love. In another place in the Bible, it's called a holy kiss. This is not an inappropriate thing. This is not a chance to be a creeper. This is a way of showing affection because God has made us family. Now think for a moment about the fact that Peter has been writing to slaves and masters, and he has been writing to husbands and wives. Women are not treated as equals outside the church in the ancient world, but they are treated as equals inside the church. Slaves are not treated as equals outside the church in the ancient world, but they are treated as equals inside the church. In fact, one of the slaves that we know about in the ancient church, we can read a book called Philemon. There's a, a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus wasn't told, hey, just go home. Onesimus was set free and becomes a bishop in the ancient world. How awkward is it that you now go to church and your former slave is your pastor? who has authority over you. The church completely turned on its head the values of the ancient world, and it does the same for us. 
Friends, we need to show affection in our church together. And for those of you who are watching online, I love you, and I want you to feel safe, and I hope that you're able to come back soon. But one of the clear things you cannot do at home is to show affection for your fellow Christians. And so if you are struggling in this time because you haven't seen many people face-to-face, I want to say it's partly because we are made to be together. And so I don't want to in any way force you to do something you're uncomfortable with. All I want to do is say, saints, we need to show this kind of affection together. And why do we need the command and the reminder? Because it's possible for our love to grow cold. Even for those who commit to loving each other in holy matrimony, it's possible that you quit holding hands and stop kissing and just don't want to cuddle anymore because, eh, we went through that and it's kind of, eh. And then all of a sudden, you're like strangers cohabiting when you're supposed to be lovers. Now, if that's true within the context of holy matrimony, it's also true in the context of church. And it's easy for the church to be a group of little friends that are no different than friends outside the church, but that's not what we're intended to be. So saints, let me say this to you very clearly. How do we apply this passage? I'm going to give you a couple of things. Number one, greet people that you do not know. Greet people that you do not know. It doesn't have to be some big elaborate thing, but go beyond hi and then running away. Learn someone's name. Even in our small congregation, I guarantee there are people here in attendance that don't know the names of everyone in here. And there's, there's not a ton of people here. This is pretty doable. We ought to be the kind of place where everyone is known and everyone is loved. I see some of you nodding your heads. Some of you are longing for this because you're not enjoying the community of the church. Some of you have groups of friends where you get your needs met, and that's awesome. But the church is not a clique. The church is a family. So number one application for everyone in this room, greet someone you do not know. And don't just do it once. Do it every week. Know people's names. It's urgent that we demonstrate the love that we receive from the Father. Don't just say, oh, I I love people. If you can't name them and you don't have specific people in mind, you don't love people. And if you say, I love people except for these people, you don't love people. God has called the church to be a family where every part of the body is loved and cherished because we are all connected. Greet people you don't know. Eat with people you don't know. When you form groups to go out to lunch, don't just look for the people that you've known for years. I get it. You enjoy their company. That's fine. But when we come together as God's family, if you leave other people out, you're neglecting the body. So love people you don't know by greeting them, by eating with them. Share your things, not just with your friends, but with people you don't know, and have a special bond with your fellow Christians. Peter has written this letter so that we could experience the love of God. We need to know the word so that we experience the love of God, 
but we need to practice the love of God so that we feel the love of God. See, God didn't just give us his word and tell you to go off by yourself and read it. He gave you his word in the context of a church where we could put it into practice. First Baptist Church of Holly, there should not be a lonely person in our congregation unless they are sinfully shutting everyone out. And even then, you pray for them and you try again and again and again. Our goal is no one lives a lonely life in our congregation. And our goal is that our congregation grows as we welcome more and more people. And there shouldn't have to be a two and three and four year process of getting to know people and then finally getting in the inner circle. None of that is appropriate in the church. The church is to be God's family where people are loved and welcomed as treated as equals as quickly as possible. And so saints, I want to encourage you to commit to being a more loving person in our fellowship. For those who are streaming online, I would ask you this question clearly. What are you waiting for to come back and worship in person? Maybe you have something specific. Maybe you're waiting for a second vaccine and then another 10 days, and okay, I can't wait to see you. But if you're waiting for perfect peace and safety, it's never going to come. And so I want to encourage you, we need one another as a loving family that God has called together. Why? Because we will suffer. And as we suffer, the love of God flows through the word of God and the people of God. And we are not made to do this alone. Would you pray with me? Father, I praise you for your mercy, for the forgiveness of sins. I thank you for your love that's been shown not only in Christ, but through the saints that are part of the church. And I ask that as we have received your love, more and more, we would give it away to those around us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.